Um, well, yeah, if you don't know who I am, um, you might be thinking, what is this 16-year-old doing on stage? I am the pastor of uh, the junior high ministry. I work with 6th, 7th, and 8th graders. Absolutely love my job. Um, love to play dodgeball, so it really worked out well for me. Um, love my job, love my workers. Uh, man, I can't tell you how much of a privilege it is to be a part of something that lasts for eternity, something that pays dividends forever in the kingdom of God. There's nothing more uh, sweet to speak the truth of God to a junior higher who has no hope, whose parents are maybe divorced, whose parents maybe are into prostitution or are recovering drug addicts or those that don't even have parents. I can't tell you. Um, it breaks my heart to see how far sin has gone um, and how it takes our youth captive. But it is so sweet to tell them that the gospel is so much stronger than your pain. The gospel can reach just as far as sin and even further. Um, I love to do it. Um, so let's pray before we begin. Father, I just want to thank you for saving me. I want to thank you for uh, picking a boy, um, a young boy with no hope, Father, with no father, with a torn up family life, surrounded by drugs and alcohol, living on welfare, thinking I'm just going to be another statistic, another boy lost to the ghetto, lost to brokenness, lost to divorce. But Father, that was not your will. That was not your plan. You picked me up out of the pit that my sin had created, and I thank you for it. Father, I pray right now that you would speak. I do not desire to hear my words echo off these walls. Father, my words cannot change a mind. It is your words who perform the modern day miracle of changing a heart, a heart that hates you, a heart that is so hard that we see in the scriptures that would even call the miracles of Christ the work of Satan. That's our heart. That's our brokenness. That's our pain. That's where our sin has brought us. But you are a God who speaks and stills storms. You're a God who speaks and creates supernovas. You are a God who can change a heart, a God who can speak to the tombs and say, Lazarus, come forth. You're a God who beat death, and I pray that you would speak tonight. No one is here to encounter what I say. They're here to encounter what you say, and Father, I humbly offer this message to you. You know what it is. And I've worked, and I've studied, and I've prepared, but I come to you now saying it is imperfect, it is nothing, it is simply ink on paper. We need the Spirit today. We need the Spirit to take these words and to hit us in the face with the truth of the gospel. And I pray you would do that today. Please speak. I desire nothing more than your words. And you're my prayer. Amen. So I had the wonderful privilege um, of having lunch with our executive pastor, our new executive pastor, Tim Baustrom. Uh, he paid. It's kind of how it works. Uh, it's good to be the low man on the totem pole sometimes because uh, people treat you well. Um, 
So uh, I went to Tim, and I went into his office, and it, we didn't have like a lunch meeting. It wasn't a, let's talk about the business of the church. I simply went into Tim's office, and I said, Tim, um, what are you doing for lunch? And Tim, because he's super healthy, um, Tim can outrun me. I mean, the guy is, well, he's in, he's in amazing shape. Um, but Tim always brings his lunch. It's like rice, peas, and tofu, and like energy drinks. I mean, that's what he did. So I love you, Tim. Um, so I said, Tim, did you bring your lunch? And he said, yeah, I brought my lunch. And I was like, well, would you willing to be skip, skip your lunch, maybe save it for another day? And he's like, yeah, don't worry. Tofu lasts for three years. So I just, I don't even need to refrigerate it. Um, so I said, okay. So Tim's like, okay, let's go. My treat, which I was even more excited about. I was like, oh, we'd have to do a grande meal at Taco Bell. So um, Tim took me to lunch. We began to talk. And like I said, we're not talking about church business. So the conversation went from sports to family, basically to everything in between. And as we were talking, we stumbled on this topic um, that we both had fond memories of. And it was a TV show called The Twilight Zone. Now, not the new one, the old one, the old black and white one. And we started to talk about the true brilliance of the show. What made this show so different than modern television is this show prided itself on leaving you in a lost, depressed, almost baffled state of mind right at the end. And like Tim mentioned this episode where you're rooting for the hero of the story for 25 minutes and then you realize they do this little switch and now the hero you were rooting for is now the villain and then the show ends. And you're like, wait, what, what just happened? See. What happens is the ending of the story sometimes truly messes with our perspective of the hero of the story, and it could actually crush our hope and the trust and the emotion that we put into that hero. This is something that was done over and over again in the Twilight Zone, but it's also something that was done in the Bible. The biblical writers use the same principle. Perfect example of this is the story of Solomon. Story of Solomon, man of great wealth, great wisdom, better than any king prior, better than any king to come. More riches, more fame. Israel was more prosperous in the time of Solomon than any other time. And this man's story ends with him slipping into idolatry. And then he's to be pitied among the rest of the kings. The same thing is true of our story of Jonah. If we only take Jonah 1, 2, and 3, Jonah seems like a hero, like a Billy Graham. Yes, he had his mistakes with the fish, he was spit out, he gets on dry land, he preaches God's missions, and hundreds of thousands repent. Wow, he's a hero. He should be put up there with Paul, the apostle, with the great prophets of Isaiah and Jeremiah. But no, then there's chapter four. And before the curtain closes on Jonah, we'll see he does not pass the test of a hero. Let's go to Jonah chapter four, starting with verse one. It says this. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong and he became angry. What seemed very wrong? He's speaking of the scene. The scene is this. Jonah has placed himself at a vantage point where he can see the whole city of Nineveh, probably on a hill or a, a cliff or something like that. And what he sees is when he preached his message of destruction, he said, destruction will come upon you in 40 days. 
He's waited that 40-day period, and he's sitting there waiting for judgment to come, waiting for fire to rain down, and it doesn't come. So he realizes God has extended forgiveness and not destruction. This is what causes him to be angry. Now think about it. God's prophet, God's messenger, God's man speaks a message with such clarity and apparent passion that a wicked, evil nation known for its rebellion to God and its idolatry, that nation is brought to its knees. A nation that was known for its mistreatment, its enslavement, its sheer hatred for the neighboring nations. A nation that was characterized as the bully on the block. They would do whatever they want to get whatever they want at whatever it costs their victims. This nation is brought to repentance. And it's not a sword or a bow that conquers Nineveh. It's not an army who tears down their walls. It's one message from one fishy prophet. This message was more effective than any army in history. This message scaled the city walls, invaded the hearts of the inhabitants, and they were truly changed forever. This is a victory for the kingdom of God. A victory. And yet Jonah is angry. The Hebrew in this verse actually reads, it became evil to Jonah as a great evil. Now I think the author is actually using a sense of wordplay here because that word used evil is actually used several times in connection to Nineveh, not Jonah. This is the same root word that the author used to describe Nineveh in chapter one, verse two. But now that word is used of God's prophet. It's as if for the first time the writer is revealing who the true antagonist of the story is. The enemy, the villain, is not wicked Nineveh. No, it's Jonah. And that's the twist. A scene that should have been marked with joy and thankfulness was scarred with displeasure and anger from God's prophet. The writer shows us that the motives of Jonah were never pure. He was holding on to the very end, hoping to see Nineveh destroyed. Jonah, who was saved by a fish. Jonah, who was thrown overboard. Jonah, who consistently spoke the words of the Lord to Israel. Jonah wanted to be a part of the destruction of Nineveh and not its salvation. But how can this happen? How can God's prophet be so wrong? How can the messenger's heart be so far from that of the master's? Pastor Dave Hurtado last Sunday said, what if we obeyed? That's the question he ended his message on. What if we obeyed? What would God do? What if we obeyed? Who would God bring to repentance? Today, in Jonah chapter 4, we're going to answer the question, why don't we obey? Why don't we fully submit to the mission of God? What is the greatest obstacle in our obedience? Start up with verse 2 here. 
This is Jonah's prayer. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish? I knew that you're a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. In this prayer, we see the true heart of Jonah. He fled to Tarshish because he didn't want God to extend grace. But then he speaks of God's character. He calls God a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. The interesting part about this is that phrase is not unique to Jonah. That phrase is actually an echo of Exodus 34 and Joel chapter 2. In Exodus 34, the scene is Moses goes up the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments again because he broke the first ones at the sight of the golden calf. So he goes up to receive these Ten Commandments and he requests that the Lord would go before him, that he can have an encounter with God. And he is hiding his face in the cleft of a rock. The Lord passes by and this is what the Lord says. The Lord, the Lord, a merciful God, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. It's at this point in the history of Israel that God not only reveals his name to Moses, Yahweh, but also his character. I'm a gracious and compassionate God. This is a pivotal time in the history of Israel. They've just been delivered from slavery. They're just about to enter into the promised land, and God says, I want you to know who I am. I'm gracious and I'm compassionate. Now, Joel chapter two is something completely different. The scene is completely different. The prophet goes to the people of Judah and says, Judah, repent, return to your God who you used to serve wholeheartedly. This is what it says in Joel chapter two. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Render your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God. Now listen here. For he is a gracious and compassionate slow to anger, abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. From the beginning of the birth of the nation of Israel in Exodus 34, God says, I'm gracious and compassionate. From the very end, right before the demise of the great kingdom of God, the people of God, before they fall, God says, I'm gracious and compassionate. From beginning to end, you know who I am. I've been the same. I'm the gracious and compassionate God who wants to extend forgiveness and not punishment. This is my nature, and Jonah knows this. This was not hidden from the people of Israel. It was not hidden from the prophet Jonah. And yet he wanted God to suppress his very nature. It's as if Jonah was saying, no, you are our God and not theirs. You cannot act to them as you act to us. You cannot treat them as you treat us. How could God's prophet be so selfish? How could his selfishness be so prominent and so pervasive? But surely this could, Jonah must be an anomaly. This, must, this cannot be the consensus among the people of God. Jonah's attitude, Jonah's 
posture for those who don't know the Lord must be unusual and unfounded in Israel. But it's not the truth. Israel falls victim to the same sort of selfishness. Why did God choose Israel among the peoples of the earth? Was it because they were pretty? Was it because they were morally pleasing to the eye? Did they have something that God wanted? Did God care for Israel alone and was therefore willing to dispose of the rest of the nations as if a piece of garbage? Did God have favor for Israel alone? See, sometimes we fall victim to this kind of reading of the Old Testament. When we look at the passages, the prohibitions against intermarrying, when we look at the continuing theme of being a set-apart nation, sometimes we slip into this reading. But at the very beginning, the inauguration of God's covenant dealings with Israel, he says this in Genesis chapter 12 to Abraham. He says to Abraham, I will make you a great nation. This is spoken to a man who was just worshiping idols. God calls him out. He says, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and your name will be great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. God blessed Abraham to be a blessing. The second phrase is what we forget. We think God blessed me for me. No, God has blessed you to be a blessing. From beginning to end, God had the nations in mind. God in Genesis 12 goes to the father of the nation of Israel and says, the nations of the world will be blessed because what I'm going to do with you. Genesis 1, we find the first command given to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Fill the earth. God is not about creating a utopian society of certain people that look a certain way. That's not God's plan. Revelation 7, 9 is what? John sees a great multitude from every tribe, tongue, and nation standing before the throne, standing for the Lamb. From the beginning to the end of the Bible, God's mission is to fill the earth with his glory. God has a heart for the nations, and so should we, and so should God's prophet. But Israel loses this perspective. They lose their heart for the nations. They forget the purpose and measure of God's love. They forget that God blessed us for a reason, to be a blessing. Perfect example of this is in Ezekiel chapter 16. In this chapter, God recounts in a story how he found Israel. And it's not something that was pleasant. Ezekiel 16 reads as this. On the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to make you clean, nor were you rubbed with salt or wrapped in clothes. No one looked at you with pity or had compassion enough to do any of these things for you. Rather, you were thrown out into the open field, for on the day you were born, you were despised. Wow. But then God comes in in verse 6. 
Then I passed you by, seeing you kicking in your blood. As you lay there in your blood, I said to you, live. I made you grow like a plant of the field. I bathed you with water and washed the blood from you and put ointment on you. I clothed you with embroidered dress and put sandals of fine leather on you. I adorned you with jewelry, your clothes with fine leather and costly fabric and embroidered cloth. You became very beautiful and rose to be a queen, and your fame spread among the nations. They're doing what God wanted and designed them to do. Your fame spread among the nations on account of your beauty because the splendor I had given you made your beauty perfect, declares the sovereign Lord. Israel was blessed to be a blessing. They're doing what they should have. But then verse 15 comes in and then we see trouble. Verse 15 reads, But you trusted in your beauty. You used your fame to become a prostitute. You lavished your favors on anyone who passed by. Your beauty became his. You took some of your gardens to make a gaudy high place where you carried on your prostitution and you went to him and he possessed your beauty. The nation that was supposed to be a light to the nations has now become like the nations. A nation that was supposed to use the blessing of God to spread the fame of their compassionate king had now defamed and humiliated God. Their covenant fidelity was a joke. God had lost his beautiful bride to the streets. And God's name was defamed. He was humiliated among the nations. What did Israel do with the blessings and love of God? They squandered it away selfishly. Well, so does Jonah. We pick up in Jonah 4, verse 3. It reads this, Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better to me to die than to live. Now, this isn't Jonah's first encounter with death. In chapter 1, verse 12, Jonah instructs the sailors on the boat, as the storm is going on, to throw him overboard because he is the cause of this judgment. It seems like Jonah has a sense of peace with, with dying. It's okay with him because he accepted the fact it's my actions that are causing the storm. I ran from God, therefore if I die at his hand, that is okay. But in chapter four, we see a completely different scenario. He is wishing death not because of his actions, but because of a lack of action on God's part. God did not bring judgment. God, or Jonah was such a strong nationalist that he could not see God's forgiveness given to his enemies. That was simply a world he did not want to live in. Jonah wanted judgment and not grace. Now maybe if Jonah could have written his message, written his prophetic oracle, if he was in charge of what he said to Nineveh, maybe he would have said something like this. Now bear with me here. Nineveh, listen to the chosen prophet of Israel. Listen to the prophet of the people of God. 
Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. I will burn your chariots in smoke. The sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth. The voice of your messengers shall be heard no longer. Woe to the bloody city, full of lies and plunder. No end to the prey, the crack of the whip the rumbling of the wheels, galloping horses, bounding chariots, horsemen charging, flashing swords and glittering spears, hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies, all because of the countless whorings of the prostitute Nineveh. Graceful and deadly are her charms, who betrays nations with her whorings, the people with their charms. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. I will lift up your skirt over your face, and I will make the nations look at your nakedness and your shame. I will treat you as filth and contempt. I will make you a spectacle, so when people look at you, they will shrink back in terror and say, Nineveh is wasted. Now I know what you're thinking. Paul, if you wrote that, that's kind of crude and inappropriate. And you would probably be right. But I didn't write that. That's actually verses from Nahum chapter two and Nahum chapter three, so I'm off the hook. But think about it, Nahum is a prophet of God just sent 150 years after. Nahum is only two books Two books away from Jonah. That's six pages in my Bible. So why on earth is Nahum right and Jonah wrong? Why would God rebuke the prophet Jonah when 150 years later he would send Nahum? Nahum had the message that Jonah wanted to preach. But God rebukes him with this question in verse four. But the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? Why would God rebuke his prophet if 150 years later he would send a prophet speaking of destruction? I think it's actually the same reason while Jesus rebukes James and John in Luke chapter nine. The scene in Luke chapter nine, you don't have to turn there, I'll just paraphrase it for you. In Luke chapter nine what happens is Jesus is said to fit, set his face towards Jerusalem. Which means this, he's in the final leg of his mission with God, which is what? To die on the cross and to defeat sin by raising from the dead. So as he's setting his face towards Jerusalem, as he's going there, he's gonna stop at a Samaritan village. If you know anything about Bible times, Jews and Samaritans, not friends, okay? It's like Boston Celtics fans and Laker fans. And if you're a Celtics fan, I'm sorry, go Lakers. I know all the Sacramento Queens fans are upset at me. Kings, I'm sorry, that slips. Anyways, the point is this. The Samaritan village says no. No, you can't come here. James and John, the disciples of Jesus, are so infuriated at this that they go to Jesus and they're like, Jesus, let us call down fire and destroy this city. And Jesus rebukes their eagerness to see Judgment and not grace. You see, the first inclination of a heart that has truly been changed by God is not punishment, it's grace. The ethics of the Sermon on the Mount that they just heard and apparently forgot was this. If someone strikes you on one cheek, what do you do? You turn to them the other. 
Now is Jesus saying, let violence and evil go on without restraint or resistance? No. What he is saying, when he says do not resist an evil person, he's saying don't hesitate in doing good to your enemies. Now hear this, God will judge every, every, every evil action. Every slap against every cheek will be accounted for. But we are not designed to be God's arbiters of his wrath. We are called to love as we've been loved. We are not God's bounty hunters, we're his loving servants. So Nahum was right because he obeyed God and spoke of God's punishment. Jonah was wrong because he lost his role and the love of God. Jonah wanted to speak his punishment and not God's. The rest of the chapter of Jonah, verses 5 through 11, um, actually happened after, or sorry, before verses 1 through 4. If we understand the scene of Jonah, it happens like this. Jonah preaches his message. He goes up and builds this shelter, and he waits 40 days to see judgment. Verses 1 through 4 happen after those 40 days. Verses 5 through 11 should be better understood as happening during the 40 days, when Jonah is still waiting to see what the Lord will do. And I believe the writer does that because the writer is using a sense of almost comedy in verses 5 through 11 to show how selfish Jonah really is with the love of God. So let's start with verse 5. Jonah had gone out, sat down at a place east of the city. There he made for himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. Jonah was very happy about the plant. Yay! But at the dawn the next day, God provided a worm, which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than live. And God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about a plant? It is, he said. I am so angry, I wish I were dead. Sounds like a two-year-old throwing a tantrum. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant. Though you did not tend it or make it grow, it sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are men more than a hundred and twenty thousand people who cannot tell their right hand from their left hand, and also many animals. So what happens is Jonah preaches his way through the city of Nineveh. He goes up to a hill in the east, builds this shelter, which if you think about it, why would a prophet so in love, so smitten with his own nation, with such hatred towards those that are not the people of God, why would he stay in Nineveh? Why would he stay? Why wouldn't he just turn tail and run? It's because he wanted to see a Sodom and Gomorrah-like judgment. He's like some NASCAR fans. They don't watch 500 laps of left turns 
just to see who wins. They want to see a crash, right? Jonah wanted to see a crash. So he builds this shelter to protect himself from the heat of the sun. The heat in this area, when the sun beat down and you were not in shade, could rise the temperatures up to 110 plus. It was very, very hot. And then we're told in this passage that a hot east wind blew. This most likely is what is phrased or what is called the Scirocco. What the Scirocco is, the Scirocco is this hot east wind that is so full of positive ions that it actually affects the serotonin and other neurobrain transmitters in your brain. Neurobrain transmitters. I don't know. It's written down there. I didn't say it very well. Okay? The point is this. This wind can blow so hard that it actually gives you a sense of delusion. You, be, you have hallucinations. You can become depressed and exhausted. In some Muslim cultures, when this wind is actually blowing, they will lessen the crimes. They will lessen the punishment for certain crimes because they just say it's the wind's fault. That's why this man acted the way he did. The point of this is that Jonah is not at the Comfort Inn. Jonah is not at ease and in luxury right now. It's a painful sight, but God is gracious. God is gracious to send a plant that grows and shades Jonah's overheating body. God is so loving, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger when it comes to the dealings of his prophet. Think about it. God saw his prophet run away from him instead of letting him die at the bottom of the sea he sends a fish. God saw his prophet sulk in anger as he brought a nation to repentance. God saw his prophet build a shelter just to see people destroyed. And yet he provides a leafy plant. God gives grace. It says that this plant eased his discomfort. Now the funny thing, I think this is another wordplay here, is the prophet uses this word discomfort. It actually can be translated as personal trouble. So we could translate it as to be relieved from trouble or to be freed from harm. Now think about the story of Jonah for one moment. Who is really being saved from trouble? Who is really being saved from harm? If not Nineveh. Jonah's discomfort is physical. Nineveh is facing divine destruction. And yet all this prophet cares about is a plant. But God will not let Jonah get away with this. He must rebuke his prophet. He must rebuke this selfish heart. See, God comes after Jonah and he attacks the plant. Now think about this for a second. If I were to come into your house because you owed me money and I wanted to intimidate you, would I come bursting in, look around, see your ficus plant and kick it over? Oh yeah, there's pottery dirt everywhere. Where's my money? No, the mob doesn't come in and knock over your potty, pottery plants and break your chia pets. That's not what they do. That's not intimidating. So how could God just attack a plant to rebuke his prophet? Think about it from a biblical perspective, how God has treated other. God took away Jonah's, or sorry, Job's 
business, he took away his belongings, and he took away his family, and Job is a good guy. So how does no, or Jonah get away with just losing a plant? Because God knows, he's very poignant in his rebuke. He attacks at the heart of Jonah, he attacks at his comfort. And the scene, the scene is so comical. It's as if I could see Jonah holding that plant as if it was his beloved child. On his knees, looking up to heaven as if to win the ear of God just for a moment. Screaming at the top of his lungs, why God, why? Not my plant. All the while, a slow journey away lies a city of hundreds of thousands of souls waiting to hear about their judgment. They are on the cliff's edge. They are on the precipice of eternity and one more step and they're done. The thin thread of grace that holds them over the pit of judgment is beginning to uncoil. There's an overwhelming sense of uncertainty with the people of Nineveh. It's as if they're saying, what will happen to us? Will God forgive us? All the while, there stands a prophet in the background weeping over a plant. Why hundreds of thousands wait to hear their verdict for eternity. Now, it's very easy to judge Jonah for his heart, but we are not far from it. But God ups the ante of this rebuke. God mentions the cattle. In the very last verse, he mentions that there's these animals there. What do I think God's doing there? Why does he mention the animals? Why is that important? I think is what he's saying is, if I were just to spare the city for the sake of the animals, it'd be worth it. Surely, hundreds of thousands of cattle are worth more than one plant. But then he ups the ante even more. He says that there are 120,000 people living in this city who do not know their right hand from their left hand. Is he saying that God is so gracious to the dyslexic? No, I don't think that's what he's saying. The phrase is somewhat cryptic, and some people say, you know, what it's talking about is the infant population. I don't think that works simply because the number is way too high. That's a lot of infants. That's a lot of diapers. I think what it's talking about is the population of Nineveh. But what does that mean? Are they morally innocent? No. They are guilty of the crimes that Nahum will predict in 150 years. And then in the story of Jonah, they're never seen as innocent. They own up to their guilt when they repent in chapter 3, verse 5. They're not seen as morally innocent. So how are they innocent? What does this phrase mean? I think it means this. I think they're innocent in a different way. They've been so trapped by their troubles. They've been so in bondage to their sin, they don't know a way out. Their immoral behavior has created a prison that they can't break out of. They don't know the God that can break their change no matter how strong they are. They don't know the God that no matter how far your sin has pulled you down, he can pull you back up. They don't know how to get out of this trouble. 
They don't know the God that can free them. And God wants his prophet to speak to these people, hoping that they'll take this way out. But Jonah cares more about a plant than he does thousands of dying people, thousands of lost souls. The plant was a gift to Jonah he did not earn and he did not deserve. The fish was a gift to Jonah that he did not earn or he did not deserve. So why is it that God cannot give to to Nineveh what they do not deserve and what they have not earned? Now we may look at Jonah and say, what a wicked prophet, that is not me. But in America, we weep when our comfort is taken away. We weep when our luxuries are taken away. All the while, there is a world dying without the message of Jesus Christ. There are 1.6 billion people on the globe who have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ once in their life. Not once. 1.6 billion. And as we sit in the shelters that we have constructed, just like Jonah, we sit there comfortably. There are 70,000 people dying a day without the message of Jesus Christ. So what gets in our way? What is our greatest obstacle? What is our hurdle in fully submitting to the message of God? What is it that stays our tongue, that shuts our mouth, that slows our feet? What is it that gets in the way of us getting the gospel to the nations? It's our pride. Israel fell to this. Jonah fell to this. Do not fall to this. The heart is simple. Jonah held on to the love of God as if it were a possession to be owned and not something to be shared. But we have quickly adopted a mindset that says this, for God so loved the world. No, 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 scratch that. Take out world. Put my name in. For God so loved Paul. Does God love you? He does. Absolutely he loves you. He says in one of the prophets that he sings over those he's redeemed. Does he love you? Yes, he loves you. But it's a subtle change to say, God blessed me for me. God loves me for me. God saved me for me. It's as if we have taken the love of God, put it on a shelf as a trophy, put a placard of our name on it. We bring our friends over to bring some attention to ourselves and say, look who loves me. How we've missed it. God blessed you to be a blessing. God loved you for the nations. God saved you for the nations. God did not save you to be silent. I end with this verse. First Peter chapter two says this. But God, or sorry, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession. 1 Peter 2, 9, that's in the New Testament. But this verse right there is an echo of Exodus 19, 5 through 6, the beginning of God's dealings with Israel. This was the mission of Israel. This was Jonah's mission. This is our mission. Why are we chosen? Why are we God's possessions? Let me read the verse again. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession 
so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Does the love of God stop at you or does it move through you? See, because there is a plague of silence over this globe. God wants passionately for a divine global choir to sing his praise and yet 1.6 billion people don't know the song and even more sing to something else. That silence is something that God will not stand for. Will you? Will you speak to that silence and say, sing to the king? Or will you let the silence remain? Father, I love you. And I thank you that this message hit me so hard when I prepared it. Hit me so hard, Father. It was a simple thing of walking my dog, seeing my gardener, Robert. And I know you wanted me to tell Robert the love of Christ. I know you wanted me to give him the gospel. But I continued on. I moved on. I walked past him. I said hello, and that was it. Father, forgive me. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to, no, I meant to be silent, and I'm sorry. Father, this message is not a message from an angry preacher, but from a preacher who fell, a pastor who fell, and who did not speak the message of Jesus Christ. So I preach this first and foremost to myself. I don't want the silence to continue. Father, I promise you put Robert before me again, and I will tell him of Christ. I'm sorry. And you need my prayer. Amen.